Hello, welcome to the latest edition of the Beaver Banter Podcast. I'm Nick Daschle, and I cover Oregon State Athletics for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. We're uh, joined today by Joe Freeman, who covers Oregon State Baseball for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Joe, welcome. Daschle, how are you doing, man? What's going on? I'm uh, looking forward to uh, some vacation here, and I'm also gearing up for the world track meet, so... Uh, one of those things sounds fun. <laughs> well, uh, no comment. So, anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, nice job on baseball this season. You kind of crushed it with some of those pretty good storytelling on some of the some of the better Beaver baseball players. Thanks, man. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a really fun year to cover. It was a an interesting team with a lot of uh, a lot of good guys. It was, the team had a very good vibe from uh, from the very first day, and you could kind of get a sense that. Uh, that they were going places, so it was it was a fun season to cover for sure. That always seems to be the the well, I shouldn't say always, but most of the time that seems to be the case with Oregon State baseball. Um, you know, decent guys. I mean, it, that's a, seems what they recruit down there, and just a matter of how well they can play, I suppose. Yeah, they um, obviously. You know, I haven't covered uh, I haven't covered that much. I've only covered them for the last couple of years. But uh, my understanding is is part of the way that they recruit is you know they don't always go after the top one hundred guys, quote unquote. They they do factor in you know um, you know chemistry and and character and a lot into the guys that they pick up. They kind of want the the quote unquote right guys uh, that that'll work in Corvallis. So I guess that part plays into that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on uh, on today's pod, we're going to focus on obviously on Beaver baseball and the season that ended Monday with the four to three loss to Auburn in the Corvallis Super Regional. Um, so let's take a look at some of the big picture topics and probably start off with a little bit of a season review. Um, what uh, what do you think this team will be remembered for, and this season will be remembered for? Well, you know, kind of a few things, I guess. Uh, I guess, you know, kind of big picture. Uh, I, I kind of think that that this was the year that it kind of became Mitch Canham's program. You know, he, his first year was the COVID year. Um, and so that didn't count for anything. I think they played 12 games or something like that. Um, and then and then last year was his first, you know, full season, but they still had COVID restrictions and separated locker rooms and travel restrictions and, and a lot of mask wearing. And it, it just was a, a, a much different experience. And then, you know, kind of in the dugout, he was still getting his feet wet, still kind of spreading his message and um, transitioning the team and the guys to get used to him and his style and all of that. But but this year, I really do believe it kind of became his his program. He, he crystallizes culture. He's got the, you know, I'm doing air quotes right now. You can't see on the video, but his, his whole thing is family. He, he doesn't call it a team. He calls it a family. Um, and and I really believe this team was 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 super close team, a special group that kind of had a special bond. I can't tell you how many times I heard multiple guys talk about this, how close they were. How last year, you know, it was more of guys doing their own things uh, or, or kind of being splintered, whereas this year was was really a connected kind of cohesive group that just had remarkable closeness and remarkable chemistry. Um, and so I think that is a big component of everything that Mitch wants to do. He's he's a guy that regularly runs around talking about how much he loves his guys and how close his family is and 
and all of that sort of thing. They break huddles with with family on three and and shout that all the time. And um, and I you know I, I I assume there were many teams under Pat Casey that was close that were close, but. Pat Casey was a much different manager. He was a fiery manager, a spark plug. He was guided by emotion and intensity and, you know, dealing with him after games for for reporters was often was often futile and frustrating. He was always so angry and amped up. Mitch is a much more uh, measured and and calm man and and you rarely ever see him get upset or rattled or angry and he's constantly teaching and and it's just a much different style and so you know, that takes a while to kind of re- replace, uh, first of all, to replace a legend that you played for, but also just to kind of, you know, insert your personality in your style. And um, that said, along the way, he also inspires. I- I've heard multiple guys over the last three years, including prominent players like Cooper Jerpy and, and just a couple weeks ago, Garrett Forrester told me they'd run through a brick wall for Mitch. And um, there was a lot of guys on the fence when he took over, when Pat left and immediately adopted to his style. So uh, again, I just think, you know, big picture, this was this was kind of the season that this became Mitch's program as much as anything. Um, as far as the actual baseball goes, Nick, um, it was a remarkably good season that, that just kind of fell short. You know, they, they won 48 games, uh, reached the Super Regionals, uh, incredibly consistent and dominant. They didn't lose consecutive games, which is insane in baseball, uh, until the second to last week of the season. I don't recall a team that I've watched or covered do that. Um, and, and so just they played that you, you kind of I guess you saw that that cohesiveness and closeness off the field, you know, kind of manifest itself onto the field as well with with that consistency. And, and of course, it doesn't hurt that the roster just featured some ridiculous and incredible top end talent. You know, one of the best pitchers in program history in Cooper Jerpy, who just today was named, in fact, the national pitcher of the year, uh, Jacob Melton. And, and, you know, Cooper is also a finalist for the Golden Spikes Award and, uh, and for the Dick Hauser Trophy. Uh, Jacob Melton, the Pac-12 Player of the Year, uh, set all kind or set or or close got, came close to setting multiple uh, single season records. Uh, you know, mentioned with the likes of Adley Rushman with some of his accomplishments, um, and then just program mainstay like a Wade Meckler, just a gritty uh, guy who's made himself into everything he is. That kind of epitomizes you know, what Mitch wants his program to represent. Also a really good player and Justin Boyd. I mean, I could go on and on. There's just these these really good players that you just can't replace that will probably depart the program. And so, um, so yeah, I, you know, it, it's it's kind of a mixed bag though because the team also fell short because you look at what they did. They did win 48 games. They did, did get to the Super Regionals, but from day one, they said that anything short of Omaha would be a failure. And so, you know, I guess when you measure success and you measure your program under that kind of uh, lofty kind of ambition, anything, you know, this season is is kind of a failure for them in that regard. Um, and along the way, they did just fall up short several times. You know, they, they squandered a chance to win a regular season Pac-12 championship by losing four of their last five games and 
They lost in the Pac-12 championship game to Stanford after blowing a historic lead in, in the, the, the game to get to the final. And then, of course, they, they lost in the Super Regional uh, final to, to Auburn by a, a combined two runs in three games and, and like you said, four to three in that final. So just a team that was so good and so stacked with talent and so close just came up short. I, I think in the end... Um, you know, a special season, I guess, will be defined by them probably being about one arm short and one bat at the bottom of, of the order short. I think if they had those two components, um, they probably would have persevered. But uh, but yeah, it's kind of a kind of a mixed bag, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's where we're at with Oregon State baseball in terms of, you know, the season is, is, is kind of a failure if, if they don't get to Omaha. But but realistically, I mean, it's hard to say this season wasn't a success. I mean, it, this was Mitch is really his first, you know, I mean, it took a while to get this thing going because of the pandemic. He just, you know, had so many hurdles to overcome. And so this really was his first, you know, real season, uh, true season. And I mean, they, they damn near got to the college world series and, and, with a, with a lot of guys that had break, you know, that weren't necessarily on the top of the, you know, right in the middle of the radar last year, they had breakout seasons. And so, I mean, I don't, I mean, only eight teams get there and baseball's such a weird sport. I mean, it's not always the best team that, that, uh, you know, that, that, that wins it all or even gets to where you want to get to it. Sometimes it's just, you run into a hot pitcher and then and, and uh, that's the end of your season. So I think I mentioned, you know, they were one bat and one one arm short. And and quite frankly, they have the arm on the roster. His name's Will Frisch, and he underwent season ending surgery, you know, the, the first month of the season. He he experienced pain in camp and and you know had had a, a, a surgery. And so he was going to, I think, be their number two starter. He had had a really, uh, he, he closed the season last year really well. He had a, a an important off season in which he really made strides. Him and Cooper Jerpy and a couple of the other guys went to Seattle to this place called Driveline and and uh, kind of tweaked a lot of the things they do using analytics and and motion sensor to caption their 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 pitching motions and all that sort of a thing. And, and they all just came back just better pitchers and conf, more confident pitchers. And we saw that in Cooper Jerpy. I mean, he went 11 and two and led the nation in strikeouts, you know, 161, the most in, in Oregon state history. And, you know, talking to, to people around Oregon state, Will Frisch was primed to have, um, you know, maybe not quite that good of a season, but a, a really good season. And so, you know, I think if he had been in the mold, uh, or excuse me, in the fold, it's interesting to see how different things might have been. Um, and also, you know, you look at at the Super Regionals. Cooper Jerpy should have started the opener that they that they lost. And and you know, anybody who's listened to this podcast undoubtedly is an Oregon State fan, so they're well aware that that he at the last second came down with a. Uh, a bug heading into that super regional missed his his first start and came back not 100% to win the second start and so you wonder if they had pitched him in that first game and won that first game how much different things would have been it's really hard to win two in a row in a in a three game series so um 
But yeah, I agree with you. Uh, they're hard on themselves. You know, they have Omaha and championship aspirations, but man, 48 wins, second in the Pac-12. Uh, just they swept their rival Ducks. They won five games against them. Um, and just so many individual and conference, you know, awards. Uh, and, and they just fell literally one run short uh, of going to Omaha. So I have a hard time looking at the season as a failure. Right. And I, and I, you know, obviously Omaha was the prize. I would say if there was any, uh, to me, the biggest disappointment from this team is that they didn't win the regular season PAC 12 title. That was there for them to have. And, and mm -hmm. the, the finish to the season just wasn't, was not an acceptable Oregon up to Oregon state standards, I guess. If they finish, you know, even, modestly they win the Pac-12 so I mean if there's a disappointment I'd say it's not winning the Pac-12 regular season title that's not Omaha but it's still it's still a you know, box you like to check with with this program so yeah and you know it's you know when you kind of look at missing Omaha and what that means like you had said it's 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 college baseball so it's it's perhaps the most random sport that the most random team can can win on any day I mean, you look at that 2017 Beavers team, they went 56 and 6 and didn't win a World Series title. And you look at your beloved Tennessee Volunteers, Nick, and they were by far the best team in college baseball all season. And they, they also didn't make it to Omaha. They were beat on their own field, um, you know, by Notre Dame. So uh, I think that just fuels that kind of notion that it really is kind of a crapshoot at some level. Well, I mean, some of the stats you look at over, over the course of time from, you know, 99 on since they put in the Super Regional, I mean, mm -hmm. the, the number one seed, seven of the seven of the number, the top overall seeds did not make it to the College World Series. The two seeds, six of them, the three seeds, seven, four seeds, seven of them. I mean, uh, if you take the top eight national seeds, forty only forty three percent of those teams made it to Omaha. So, and mm -hmm. they and they had home, you know, they had the the advantage you you want home field throughout, and less than half of them made it to Omaha. So, I mean, it's baseball is, and I don't know what the stats are, say in softball or or men's basketball for the top eight teams, but. I would, I would, I would have to say it's higher than that for those sports. It's just baseball is. There's so many intangibles. It's, I mean, shoot. I mean, I mean, <laughs> you know, a, a bad umpire one day. I mean, <laughs> it had the greatest. Uh, they had a couple of uh, strike calls there in the in the sixth. Uh, was it the sixth inning? Auburn had their. I'm thinking, yeah, they had their two runs. Had a couple, at least one call. I know it should have been a strike and. You know, you get that, and it's maybe it's a different inning, and there's just things like that that you know can really turn a turn a baseball game. But uh. yeah, and, and to that point, I, I think I think one of the four top seeds this year made it. I think it was only Stanford, right? And Stanford had to had to come back after losing the opener of their super regional, and they only made it to the supers because they hit back to back home runs to win walk off style in the regional. So. You know, it really does take kind of a, a special mix of talent and good fortune and, and guys getting hot at the right time. And uh, and that was something this last weekend that, uh, you know, they, and granted, they were playing a, a very uh, 
a very good team in Auburn. It's it's that's the other thing is you know only eight teams make it, and there are some the, the top twenty to thirty teams in college baseball are, are all very good and and are all capable of beating anyone at any time. And Auburn is just a team that that much like Oregon State, you could tell was close and plays together and um, and features features a good mix of talent, but. You know, there's there's just guys who who kind of didn't either hit slumps or didn't show up at, at the right time. You know, Gavin Gavin Logan, who was their catcher, went something like two for twenty six uh, after he had a five for seven game um, against UCLA. Just really slumped uh, down the down the you know in the in the postseason down the stretch there and and. Garrett Forrester had a had a just an okay couple of last games. Uh, I know he had three or four walks in that final, but struck out to end the game. Wade Meckler, who is just remarkably consistent all year, you know he didn't have his best series, uh, and so you know it's it kind of, the bottom of the order was was very up and down, much as they were all year. It just takes the not only having the best players, but having the best players produced in in the biggest moments, and and. Uh, you know, a lot of the credit goes to Auburn because their pitching was so good. But uh, but I think you know, looking back, Oregon State will will kind of kick themselves about either getting in the slump or just missing that key hit at the key time. And and boy, I didn't even mention Travis Bazana, who you know he had a home run in the game that forced the do or die game three, which was a crucial home run. But Man, I know he's going to really stew on on his final game of the season all offseason. He went 0 for 4, uh, and he left eight men on base, including four men in scoring position at key, key situations. He left a runner on third in the third and left runners on second base in all of his other three at-bats. And you're like, and he is an incredible player uh, who has proven to be pretty clutch as a freshman, as a true freshman. And and if he had just gotten one hit in one of those situations, you know, we might be having a different tone and a different conversation right now on this podcast. Or or he had made the play in, in the sixth inning. That too, yeah. Run probably would have scored on that, but he would have gotten the guy out at first. Yeah, it could have changed things. But part of this podcast we need to spend some time on is, you know, this season's over. Now we're moving on to 20, she was 2023, I guess. Um, no, I'm not doing that. I'm moving on right now. I'm out. I'm done. That's it. I'm calling no, it on the pod. You're staying, you're staying around, pal. I'm, I need help. Um, <laughs> so, uh, obviously, this team's going to lose a, a a ton of talent, but that's not exactly – you know, Oregon State is used to, you know, when you have good players, you're going to lose good players. Um, what, 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 What's this team losing and then and, and, – who, who steps in to fill some of those those voids? Yeah, well, technically, I mean, all their uh, virtually all their guys could return eligibility wise. They're either you know third year sophomores or fourth year juniors, uh, the prime guys that are leaving. But uh, college baseball players who are either in position to get drafted high or sometimes drafted at all, they don't return. You know, it's 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 makes most sense for them to head out, and so. You know, Cooper Jerpy, he's a likely, you know, top 80 draft pick. He could go in the first round. He's going to leave. Jacob Melton, another potential, you know, sec, kind of second round pick kind of guy. He's going to leave, I believe. And uh, I think Justin Boyd will get drafted enough, high enough to, to, to cause him to leave. 
I think Wade Meckler, I know that he wants to leave. He just graduated, um, you know, in this last class. And, and I think he's kind of a guy that, you know, this is a guy I wrote about earlier in the year who was uh, four foot 10, 75 pounds as a high school freshman. He was the smallest guy, uh, male or female in his freshman class, uh, had to overcome so many obstacles in his life, uh, of guys, uh, coaches telling him he wasn't good enough and college uh, recruiters telling him no. Um, even at Oregon State, he came on as a walk-on and was cut twice from the team before he before he even made it. Um, just an incredible story and an incredible, incredible work ethic uh, and a really good human being. There's not much more he can do at this level. You know, he batted, uh, boy, I'm trying to look at my stats while I, while I talk quickly here. He batted 350, uh, you know, with 23 doubles, uh, had a 483 slugging percentage, just an incredible season. There's not much more he can do to, to increase his, his draft stock. And so assuming he gets drafted, he's gone. They're going to lose, you know, veteran pitcher like Jake Finnegs, uh, Gosh, even a reliever, Mitchell Verberg, who's their last link to their last national championship. You know, he's a guy who's been around here about 13 years, it seems he's going to go. And so they're losing a lot of key pieces. And, and that's just those guys. Who knows? You know, last year, Troy Clanch, uh, an, an important player, a catcher, a middle of the order kind of guy, you know, he, he graduated and decided to transfer to kind of change things up and and get in a place where he could pursue a degree he wanted. And then uh, Jared Washburn, uh, who was a, a really good left-handed pitcher, um, son of former big leaguer, he transferred as well. So you never know. There might be a guy or two unexpected that that looks for different uh, a different scenery or, or a different team. Uh, but those are kind of the main guys they miss. But those are four, you know, probably they're arguably four of their, well, definitely four of their top five hitters and their best pitcher. And so just an immense uh, void they're going to have to fill. Now they do have a lot of talent returning. Garrett Forrester had an incredible season. He's started almost from day one as a freshman. He'll be back. Uh, you know, he's a guy who just uh, seems to excel in the clutch. And so, um, and so he'll be back. Travis Bazana had a remarkable freshman season. Um, came in with a lot of hype and delivered. And so I expect him to be even better next year. And I also expect him to, to probably move from second base out into center field. I wouldn't be surprised to see him move to the outfield. He's a guy who has expressed to me a desire to play some shortstop, play some second base, and play some outfield in his career. And he's a shortstop from, from Australia you know, when he, when he came up. So he's, he's kind of a versatile guy. But I think the coaching staff wants to get him out in the center field and see if he can't can't uh, do something out there. And part of that will open up second base for someone that that Mitch and the staff is really high on, a guy that we saw occasionally this season, uh, Jabin Trotsky, who played a little bit as a freshman. They really love his glove. He doesn't quite have a strong enough arm to play shortstop, so I think second base is his natural position. But they really love his glove. They really love his bat. He's not a not a power hitter, but he's a gap hitter, a fast guy, and a real smooth player, a hard worker. I can't tell you how many times I saw him working by himself in the cages down right field line, just hitting balls off a tee. 
uh, taking extra grounders after games and stuff like that. So he's a guy I expect to kind of move into a more prominent role next year. Mason Guerrera is a guy, he was a freshman this year from Beaverton, who he had a maybe a two-week stretch where they gave him a chance and he just absolutely crushed the ball. I think he hit three or four doubles in a two or three-game stretch on the road uh, when they swept a series. And he's a guy who probably will get a chance to win that third base job next year. Uh, their catching tandem of Gavin Logan and Tanner Smith, I think both of those guys will come back. Uh, Gavin is on the fence. He's a guy who might might get drafted or might leave as, as a free undrafted free agent. We'll see on him. Um, and then, you know, it, it, Matthew Gretler played all season with a with a with either a hand or a, or a wrist injury, and that really kind of affected his bat. I think they kind of really like him, and they expect him to kind of – Take a more take on a larger role next year. Jake Ducart has more eligibility. I, I don't know if he'll return, but he probably will. Um, and then there's a guy who is a really high, high, um, highly regarded high school player named Tyree Reed. Didn't play at all this year. Six foot three outfielder with speed and popping his bat, and and I think he's gonna you know step into a more prominent role next year. Um, and then their staff, man. Their staff's going to bring back some talent. Jacob Kamatz was a guy who went 8-2, and two, I believe, this year. We filled in their number two starter most of the season as, as a true freshman. Um, really had a, a nice nice season getting his feet wet. Jaron Hunter was a guy who came on late, pitched five really strong innings against Auburn in that do-or-die game. Um, he'll probably step into a rotation spot. And then Will Frisch will be back. I talked about him earlier um, I imagine he's going to end up kind of perhaps being the ace of the staff if he lives up to everything that everybody thinks he can be. Closer Ryan Brown, who kind of took over that job midway through the year and really, man, has electric stuff. He'll be back. A.J. Lattery, they bring back a lot of arms. And so they really do. Like you said, it's Oregon State, man. They they kind of just reload rather than, uh, you know, kind of work to rebuild. And, and they're kind of – and that's why they have these expectations all year. It's They're one of the, the best – you know, programs in the country for a reason. Um, and then, you know, we didn't even get into their recruiting class. It's a pretty, pretty highly regarded recruiting class. And and I would be lying if I said, I know a lot about high school baseball recruiting. So I, I can't get too detailed into that with expertise, but they have a lot of guys that they're really high on, including many, many kids from Oregon or locally. Um, the, the one caveat there is at least one, if not two of their uh, most most highly regarded recruits uh, might get drafted, including Gavin Turley, who is just a ridiculous outfielder from Chandler, Arizona, who uh, who probably will be a I don't know a second or third round pick in the draft. So they might not ever ever have him come to campus. But it's it's a team that's going to return a lot of uh, well, they're going to lose a lot of talent, but they will return a lot of talent too. Yeah, the couple things with baseball, I I kind of wonder. Um... I, I don't know that NIL has really taken hold. And so I don't know that, you know, a guy could maybe think about, um, you know, sticking around for another, you know, another year based on the fact they might pull in another 50 or 100K. Um, you know, and it just doesn't seem like baseball is there yet on that. And the other, the other thing I think with this team, I, I don't, I mean, I guess anybody could go into the transfer portal, but I don't, 
I, I don't see it with this team just because there's going to be so many opportunities. If you're, if you think you're good, there's going to be opportunity to, to, you know, to do something on a, on a team that should be pretty good. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I, you never know, but I, I, I'd be surprised if anybody with, you know, that's really talented is going to leave this program in the, via the transfer portal. Yeah. Last year was a little unique. You know, Troy Clonch had been a, a starter and a key player for them when he left, but he, he, and he really agonized over his decision. But, you know, in talking with him last year, he was a guy who, who wants to pursue a kind of a real estate uh, career after his, his baseball career. And, Texas A&M kind of has that program and Oregon State doesn't. Alsko, the guy that recruited him, Yeski, is the coach at, at, at Texas A&M. So was that, there was that connection. So that played into that. And then Washburn left, you know, you know, talking to Mitch afterwards about that, he just, he felt that Washburn never got a chance to experience the, uh, you know, the full, the full shebang of the Oregon State program because you know, there weren't fans almost the entire season because of COVID restrictions. And then there were very limited fans late in the season. And so, right. and, and I know we might talk a little bit about this uh, later in the podcast, but it really is one of the, uh, one of the best program or atmospheres in, in college baseball. And, and if you don't get to experience that, you know, if you're playing in separated locker rooms because of COVID, you don't get to kind of kind of see what the program is about on multiple levels and I think he just never got to experience that at least at least from Mitch's perspective and he thinks that kind of maybe played into part of him him deciding to leave but boy they talk about missing one arm they sure could have used that lefty uh he's a really good pitcher they could have used him this year yeah one other one other thing about you know next season does this do you think this entire coaching staff returns intact I do the only thing that would would possibly happen is if someone comes after like a Darwin Barney. Um, I, I don't even know that Darwin Barney gets paid. <laughs> I think he's just kind of, uh, he loves to coach. I believe he turned down multiple AAA managerial jobs to take on this assistant job at, you know, obviously at a school that he played for, a school he loved. Uh, he still lives in Portland and he would commute back and forth, oftentimes sleeping in the clubhouse. It was kind of a story that I had planned on writing, assuming that the team got to Omaha and they never did. But, you know, he'd, he'd drive with his dog and him and his dog would sleep in the clubhouse uh, multiple times a week. Um, and so so anyway, he, I guess it's possible that, that he could leave if he gets kind of a you know, a, a possibly a head coaching job or something like that. And, and I don't know that, that that would happen, but that's just the only caveat to that. But it's an incredibly co close coaching staff that all played together at Oregon State and has ties to Oregon State. So I would be surprised, barring something like that, if it, if it split up. And, you know, on that note, uh, that's one of the things that Mitch has done over the last three years is he's you know, for the lack of a better phrase, he's modernized a lot of what they do from a nutrition standpoint, from a strength and conditioning standpoint, from an analytics standpoint. He's uh, either added or expanded all of those things, uh, bringing in experts, bringing in coaches, uh, you know, adding to the staff and all those areas that is, is really kind of 
you know, enhanced and expanded what they do um, there. And so, uh, you know, that was one of the early season things that struck me is how many guys, including Cooper Jerpy, uh, including Wade Meckler, talked about how much uh, strength and muscle mass they had they had gained with a new weight, uh, you know, a strength and conditioning coach who who has an MBA and baseball background. He was he was briefly with the Trailblazers for a while. Um, and so, uh, you know, but along those lines kind of got off track there. He has expanded some of the coaching and some of the analytics and stuff. And so the program there is, is, is flush with, with help in that regard. And so I know it's a tight, a tight group. I'd be surprised to see it split up. Yeah. I mean, the only reason I was, one, I mean, one of the reasons I was thinking about it was, was, you know, Washington obviously has an opening for a head coach and, mm-hmm. you, I, and I don't know if Darwin Barney would even take their phone call, but he, he's a guy I would think would at least be on a, on a list somewhere. I, but I don't, and that's really, you know, but there's always, you never know with any of these coaches, they, they could be a pot to some, to some college that's got an opening. So. Yeah. You never know. And especially, you know, with how highly regarded not only this program is, but how a guy like, I mean, Darwin Barney was a big leaguer, uh, you know, a national champion. He's very, very well respected in baseball circles, and rightfully so. He's he's a really good guy who brings a lot to the team. I can't tell you how many guys credited him for various things. Um, you know, from a mental aspect, from from an instructional, uh, you know, hitting approach aspect. Uh, you know, Ryan Gibson, who's their hitting more of their hitting coordinator guy. He's a guy who stands by the cage and kind of offers pointers and a guy who will go through video and a guy who will go up to the batting cages and, and go through that. But Darwin's a guy who at 1 a.m. will text a guy, hey, I, I was just looking through your video from last year. Garrett Forrester told me a story, you know, midway through the year, uh, Darwin texts him late at night and says, hey, I was just looking through video of of you last year when you when you broke out in in the regionals. And I noticed that you were doing this, you know, with your approach or you had this kind of timing thing. Let's tomorrow, let's work on this. Let's get you back to where you were then. Um, and so he's a guy who, who has that kind of connection and that kind of you know, yeah. work ethic. And so, yeah, you're spot on with there. I don't know if he would, if he would be interested in a place like UW, but he certainly, I would think has ambitions on coaching, uh, you know, at being the head guy somewhere someday. Sure. I mean, I don't think you want to go the rest of your life being a volunteer coach. Yeah, so. yeah. I was surprised to find out that he wasn't getting paid. And, um, you know, he's a guy who who obviously made a lot of money in, in the big league. So that helps a little bit. But, yeah, there's only so long you can go with uh, <laughs> with with the, with that arrangement. Yeah. Well, I guess one other thing we should talk about before we check out of this thing is, is you know, a subject I hear a lot about from fans and it's, you know, the, the amount of seats that are available at Goss stadium. Um, I've asked, you know, I've asked Scott Barnes this a few times about, is there any plans to do anything more? And he said, well, no, not, in, you know, not in the short term or anything like that. I'm sure they, you know, think about it, but I'm just sort of curious, you know, you see all these sellouts this year and a lot of demand for tickets. And if the program continues to be good, I mean, you wouldn't think the, the demand is going to drop at all. And I'm just wondering, you know, should Oregon state take a hard look at seriously increasing its seating capacity or is 4,000 a good number? And is there an upside or downside to adding, you know, a 1500 seats or something like that? I, I mean, there's, I know there's the, 
the tough ticket theory that, you know, you, that way you guarantee a good atmosphere all the time. But on the other hand, if, you know, if you could sell 6,000, 6,000 tickets regularly, that's, that's a lot of extra revenue and, you know, you got to find the money to do it, but, but still, I don't know. What, what do you, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, to your point, uh, the Beavers drew 125,100 fans this season, which was a school record. Uh, they averaged over or almost 3,700 fans uh, a game, which set a, a season record. Uh, and that was something that surpassed the 2019 uh, average attendance. So you've seen kind of an uptick there. Um, so, you know, one, I think they probably had, I don't know, the top four, five, six crowds this season that they've ever had. And, uh, you know, they set the attendance record in the season finale uh, series against UCLA when they honored, uh, you know, legendary coach Pat Casey hanging his his jersey in, in the right field wall. Uh, and so that was part of that, uh, also a big series. But part of the reason they were able to to have some of these records is that they added some temporary bleachers in left field over the bullpen. And, and so that kind of helped them do that. The demand was there. I will say this to that whole thing. You know, when I was at Goss Stadium in March, there, were, there wasn't 4,000 fans there. When, when, when I was there in uh, early April, there, there wasn't 4,000 4, 4, fans there. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a tricky thing because, you know, it, it obviously demand increases as the weather gets nicer and as as the games mean more. Now they draw very well as, as I laid out their average attendance. Um, but they don't sell out every game. It's not like, you know, uh, you know, Cameron indoor stadium where you figure if they would add 5,000 more seats, they'd still draw 5,000 more fans. Um, and it's, it's not college basketball. It's not college football. It is, you know, more of a niche sport, um, that has 50 some odd games. So 25, 30 some odd home games. That's a lot of, a lot of days to fill a stadium. And so I think what they, what they probably could do is, is continue to find ways to add temporary seating when they need it. And, and they found a way this year, if they could find some way to expand that in the outside, or maybe find a way to add more standing room only seats down the lines and in a couple of those beer gardens. Uh, I think that would help. But I'm I don't necessarily think they need to add a thousand seats or add fifteen hundred seats, unless you want to make it a nicer experience and just you know add amenities and stuff like that. I don't know that this uh, this fan base and and you know this. I mean Corvallis is a small town, so. Um, so from that standpoint, I, I don't know. I don't know that they that they they really need to to go that length. Yeah, I kind of think the number is is probably about right. You know, maybe maybe if there's a way to add another 500 seats or so. But when you're, I don't think it really matters how good Oregon State baseball becomes. It, it's a weather issue. I mean, they have 10 and 12,000 seat stadiums down in the SEC, mm-hmm. but they got good weather in February and and. In March, whereas up here, I mean, if you catch a a sixty degree day in in March up here, it's a rarity. It's not, you know, it's not typically going to happen. And so, yeah, at the end of at the end of game two that they won in the last inning, it was literally fifty degrees. 
It was it was 50 degrees. This is an unseasonably cold uh, summer, but it's June. It was June 12th or 13th. It was 50 yeah. degrees. So yeah, to your point. So I don't I don't know. Even this team was undefeated for an entire season. I don't know that you know people would still come out until the weather's a little better. It's just that's just that's just life in the Northwest. So I think we're. I think I think the numbers are pretty good. They just need you know just continually to look at ways to you know, increase the fan experience. And they that's something they have addressed over the years. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, there's a lot of fans that, that drive from or uh, from Portland or some of the Portland suburbs, and, and they're just not going to go to three games a week, you know, in March or April. So, so you know, they're not going to go to every game of a series like that. So, you know, that's part of it as well. Um, but all of that said, you know, it, it really is – one of the best college baseball environments in the nation. And I was really struck uh, by comments from Auburn coach Butch Thompson during the Super Regionals. And he was a guy, you could tell that they were earnest. And in fact, he addressed it after the last game. He said, look, I don't normally come into places and talk so positively about opponents and about atmospheres. It's not my style. I'm not trying to be a nice guy here. But he kind of he called coming to Corvallis and experiencing Goss Stadium, particularly in in the postseason, as a bucket list item for him. And he said, you know, he's a guy who coaches in the SEC. You know, he's a guy that's been to um, all the SEC stadiums, obviously. And he said that that Goss Stadium stacks up to and compares favorably to any of them. He said the fans, uh, the fact that they're on top and engaged and passionate pitch to pitch, uh, you know, knocks the SEC stadiums out of the park. He's the, the crowd's engagement, the fan experience, the atmosphere uh, is on par with all of them. And you kind of heard similar, not quite as emphatic remarks, but similar remarks from um, from Vanderbilt uh, coach. I believe it's Tim Corbin. Uh, I might have might be Jim Corbin. Sorry, my, my brain's a little fried, but um, similar remarks from him too. And so um, you, you really can't, uh, you know, you hear the players and the coaches and Mitch talk about how great the crowd is, blah, 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 blah. You know, you, you get immune to, to, to players and, and coaches touting their own fan base. But in this case, it really is true. It really is a special environment um, and a special crowd that has, over the years, certainly uh, thanks to Pat Casey and certainly thanks to their uh, consistent dominance, has become a college baseball town, has become a passionate fan base. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's a, that's a big uh, advantage for the team and, uh, you know, a big notch in, in Oregon State's belt. Okay, well, that uh, lets you do it for this uh, Beaver Banter podcast. You can uh, find us, you can find this podcast anywhere you subscribe to podcasts. We'll, uh, we'll be off for a while, but be sure to check back maybe in late July, early August when we start kicking it back up again with, with football. Um, Joe, have a good summer. Thanks, man. I thought you just wanted to roll right into some kind of college football stuff. I thought we were just going to spin this forward and just delve into Jonathan Smith and what's going on this year. No, I think we've I think we've bloviated long enough. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. We'll see you. All right, take care.